Good evening to you all. Can you hear in the back? A little louder? Better? Sufficient? So by now you've uh, all had a lot of directions here. Mostly for insight practice, but also for the other practices. So we've talked about things that uh, you could be mindful of. The four foundations of mindfulness, the five aggregates, seven factors of enlightenment, the hindrances, the attitude of mind, Vedana, that pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling. (coughs) And there have been options in terms of how you could practice. You could use a primary object. Uh, Let's see which one. It could be the breath. It could be the body. It could be the breath in the body. It could be hearing. Or you could use open awareness. Or you could use a combination of both directed awareness and open awareness. You could use noting. You could focus on the attitude of mind towards what is known. You could look at awareness itself. And we haven't even gotten to the instructions about the Brahma Viharas or walking meditation here. So you've been getting a lot of directions, a lot of instructions in addition to the guidance you get in your individual interviews. And so by now, you've also probably tried a lot of different things, right? So there was uh, trying to stay on the breath, trying to feel the breath at the nostrils, trying to feel the breath at the belly, trying to feel the breath in the body, trying to feel the body, trying to notice thoughts, trying not to get lost in thoughts, trying to notice emotions, trying to feel emotions in the body, trying to notice identification with emotions, trying to notice when awareness returns after being lost, trying not to judge self, trying to notice when self is judged, trying to note striving, trying to let go of striving, trying to notice the hindrances, trying not to judge the hindrances, trying to notice the arising of the contracted self-sense, trying to notice mind states but not judge them, (laughs) trying to allow painful sensation but not stay with it too long, (laughs) trying to redirect awareness when indicated, trying to notice pleasant phenomenon without craving, trying to stay awake when sleepy, trying to stay still when restless, trying to notice intentions, trying to decide which intentions are skillful, Trying not to hold on, trying to let go, but not push away. (laughs) Trying to be continuous throughout the day, trying not to get too tight, trying to pay attention to the Dharma talks, trying to follow the teacher's guidance or not follow it. And, you know, that's an awful lot of stuff to do. (laughs) Which is why we start at 5.30 in the morning. (laughs) But tomorrow, maybe earlier. So, (laughs) 
By this point in the retreat, however, you may have had a subversive thought cross your mind. (laughs) Which is, this is called insight meditation, right? So doesn't that mean I should be having insights? So you might wonder, you know, where are all these uh, insights I'm supposed to be having? (laughs) You know, I'm trying to do it right, but nothing is happening. Nothing is happening. So, you know, uh, no big opening has happened. Or maybe there was one that did. (laughs) But then it went away. (laughs) And it won't come back. Right? So, you know, despite the best attempts to retrieve it, it remains elusive. So you're probably trying to remember, you know, like, what were you doing when that happened? How can it return? How can it be, you know, reconstructed? But then there's a question. So where are all the insights for which this type of meditation is named, right? All I see is a lot of stuff, right? It's stuff, and it's not necessarily pleasant stuff. And where's the bliss? You know, where's the joy? Where's the chewy center? You know, where's the sudden opening of the mind to the unconditioned that will make everything clear and will change everything forever? And then, you know, the important question of, you know, does knee pain qualify as an insight? (laughs) Because if it did, you'd at least feel you were getting something out of it. So let's talk about those insights. Let's talk about insights. And, you know, first of all, in regard to the knee pain... It might not be an insight, but it's raw material for one. (laughs) And in fact, if you really reflect on this, you'll be able to see that you've been having experiences which have the potential for insight to arrive all during your life. They've had raw potential. You know, the three universal characteristics of all conditioned phenomenon are always operational. They never go off duty. There's no exception to the rule. So in this sense, the world is made up of raw material for awakening. And in fact, you know, nobody winds up at a place like Spirit Rock unless they've had some contact with dukkha. You know, unless they're a really deluded type of person who just takes a wrong turn off (laughs) Sir Francis Drake and doesn't notice, you know, something different is going on here. And in fact, our noticing of the problematic nature of things as they are 
from the perspective of an individual human who's trying to be happy is the very experience, the very direct experience which drove many of us to check out this Buddhist view. It drove us to the search for truth. And as the Buddha says, you know, suffering ripens either into despair or into search. And we've all had things happen in our lives that have caused some kind of question to arise at a very deep level of our being. And I can remember for myself uh, when this happened. I was in uh, high school. This started like in the earlier part of high school, so I was maybe 13, 14 years old. And uh, a member of uh, my extended family, a beloved uncle, um, who um, had lived with us for periods of time and who I had very early um, association and connection with, developed throat cancer and uh, went through very painful uh, treatments for it and uh, eventually kind of wasted away and died. And even though my family was very close and loving and very supportive and as present as they could be for uh, him in the process, um, there wasn't a lot of communication directly to us kids about this. And it was very, very painful, very painful to hold. And raised uh, these questions, you know, like it was the first experience of seeing up close and personal illness, death, suffering, lack of control, loss of someone that I loved. And this was followed uh, for a few, uh, a period of a few years later with other illnesses and deaths of other people in my extended family that I was also very bonded to. And by the, by the end of this period of time, I was kind of like reeling with this sense of what is, what is going on around here? And my mind opened on some level to the understanding that, wow, this is going on, this is going on a lot, this is going on all the time, but it's kind of like life goes on, you know, while this is going on, and doesn't anybody notice this, right? Doesn't anybody notice this, that, you know, there's like a, there's like a problem in the system, you know, and you, you all have those kinds of stories yourselves. You know, we've all had similar things happen that have kind of brought us to some kind of edge, things that have been deeply painful, that have uh, moved us towards and sometimes even over the edge into hopelessness and despair and depression. But for most of us, most of the time, we see these as particular isolated incidents, right? Like kind of like random occurrences, and yeah, it happens once in a while, but you know, most of the time it's, you know, things are kind of level. Um, you know, there's a few holes in the bucket, but mostly it, it's holding uh, water. 
And when we're not trained in the Dharma, if we do have the experience of kind of breaking through to that insight, oh, there's a lot more than a few holes in the bucket, very often it tips us over, over the edge into depression or into despair or you know, deeply suffering states because we don't, we're not equipped to handle, handle it. So we have contact with dukkha, that's for sure. Many kinds of losses, big and small. And it's a rare person who gets to adulthood without noticing uh, anicca or impermanence. You know, we can see it in our uh, everyday lives fairly easily, this one, right? We know that things change. You know, we see the seasons change and the kids grow up and, you know, relationships come and go and jobs come and go and we move and... So there's plenty of raw material for insight to arise with an, a, a seeing of impermanence in this kind of way, but we don't generalize the insight, right? We don't really uh, connect with the fact that it's not that it happens sometimes, it's that nothing else is happening but this. And anatta, the no self or not self experience, this is, of course, is the hard to describe one. But it's not unusual for us to have an experience of this kind of thing. Uh, not everybody, but sometimes, you know, have some version of this, like uh, the dropping of boundaries with a, a person that you become intimate with whether psychologically or physically or both. You know, sometimes there's just a sense of merging and it's like, you know, no, no separation. Uh, sometimes being completely focused and involved in doing an activity so that the sense of there being a me doing the thing is absent. There's just the thing being done. Sometimes this egoic self-sense can fall away on other occasions, you know, there, there are people who wound up at least becoming curious about the Dharma through various kinds of drug experiences. Not that I'd advise that as an entry pathway necessarily. But we see this no self or not self experience as something unusual and maybe kind of mysterious, maybe very interesting and compelling maybe somewhat threatening, you know, does it mean, you know, I'm on the way to having a breakdown? I mean, I don't feel boundaries. What was that? What's happening? So we've all had many of these kinds of experiences within this group of three, impermanence, uh, dukkha, and not-self. So we've had plenty of raw material. We've had a lot of raw material before we ever got here. Yet liberating insight in the sense of what the Buddha taught generally doesn't arise from these experiences. The questions can arise, but the insights generally don't arise. So the question sometimes comes up, well, you know, you know, if somebody who had no contact with the Dharma at all 
just got really mind, you know, as mindful as they could and just kept being mindful and stayed as mindful as possible, would they on their own uh, kind of get it and figure it out? And of course, not knowing the minds of all beings, it's probably not possible to give an absolute <laughs> answer to that, but the practical answer seems to be darn unlikely. Unless they are the, the coming <laughs> uh, Buddha. So, why is it that these naturally occurring experiences of these three characteristics don't ripen into insight, understanding? It's because when they come up in the, this kind of way, unless there's been access to the Buddhist teachings, in particular the teachings of the Four Noble Truth and the Eightfold Path, there's no context for understanding them. There's no matrix in which to uh, place the experience, no framework for understanding them. You know, when they come up in the way that I've described, kind of naturally occurring without a framework, we don't see the universal nature of these things. And because we don't see the universal nature of these things, we don't understand how they work together and the implications for how we experience the world, how suffering is created, and how it can be undone. Because it's really the implications of these three considered together in their totality, how they work together in their universality that holds the key to the unbinding of mind. And the more I practice the way of the Buddha, the deeper the appreciation that I come to about his genius, his multi-leveled genius. Because he was able to identify how conditioned reality works, meaning everything we can experience directly, how it's structured, and how to use the design properties, if you want to put it that way, of reality to understand how suffering is created and how it could be released. People heard of that term, design properties? You know, any architecture kind of people in here are engineers? When I was uh, working on the forest refuge, you know, the architects would come up with like different suggestions for materials that could be used in this or that, this or that uh, function. And they would talk about the design properties of you know various materials and things. And it would be things like, okay, here's the the tinsel strength of this kind of wood with this kind of span, and you know it's got this amount of flexibility and. It, this insulation can, you know, uh, resist heat at this temperature and all the rest of it. The Buddha saw how these things, these three characteristics, worked, what their f- features were, and how their f- the features of these three things interacted with each other and produced a particular kind of outcome. And then the real genius of the Buddha 
besides the fact that his heart was so generous as to want to figure this stuff out in order to teach it and was willing to go through everything that was involved in the process of figuring it out. The real genius of the Buddha was he could see how to reverse engineer the whole thing. Do people know the phrase reverse engineer? Okay, imagine... Say the construction of a, a car. Say it's made by uh, Mercedes-Benz or something, you know. Mercedes-Benz put a lot of time and care into figuring out how the car worked, right? Someone else who wanted to put the car together but didn't want to go through through the whole process of figuring out what was involved in the car, could do something that's called reverse engineering, which is get the car, take it apart, look at how it's made, you know, see what's in it, figure out how what's in it was constructed, and replicate it, right? And what the Buddha did with this whole issue of suffering and the creation of suffering was he studied it so completely, he came to understand at a very deep level how it happened, how it, how it arose, how it was put together, what contributed to its arising, what misapprehensions were involved in its creation. And in understanding how it was created, he was then able to say, well, if that's how it's put together, then how do you take it apart? How do, you, how do you take it apart? How do you unbind it? And was able to, step by step, say, this is how you do it. This is how you can do it. Which is what his explication of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path is. It's him telling us how to reverse engineer it. How to reverse engineer suffering. So let's talk about uh, the three characteristics then through the Buddha's eyes. The truth in these very uh, ordinary things that we can experience and do experience all the time. Separate from our concern about the Big Bang and you know looking for the Big Bang and needing the Big Bang. If these are universal characteristics, the implication of that is we can learn from, we can gain insight from any single thing, no matter how seemingly small and insignificant, right? Because there's raw material there all the time. It's nothing but raw material for insight. So in Nietzsche, you know, impermanence is probably the easiest of the three characteristics to see because we accept it on some level. We can understand that it occurs occasionally. But 
the passing away of all things, the arising and passing away of all things at all scale of reality, from the very smallest things to the very biggest things, to things that are you know, part of our individual uh, body-mind system, to things that are external to us, to things that belong to, to others. Seeing it on all scales, arising because of conditions and passing away when conditions change, we don't get that. We don't get it on the emotional level. We don't get it on the body level. We don't get it on the deep down, all the way through level. We get it sometimes in a limited way, but not in a thoroughgoing way. And because we don't deeply see Anicca, we can't completely grasp and understand the second characteristic, dukkha. You know, we do see unsatisfactoriness sometimes. In fact, there's a lot that we don't like from the perspective of the human being wanting to seek control of things, conditioned events and things are problematic. You know why? Because the very fact that they arise because of conditions that we partially control means that our agency is limited. There's a kind of insecurity to things, even the things that we like. You know, we can't summon only those experiences that we like, nor can we keep them going in any kind of permanent way. We can't keep experiences we don't like from arising, nor can we make them go away. And, you know, a good part of what we experience is downright painful, distressing, disturbing, loss and separation, illness, old age, and death. And we have limited control because our experiences, including our own bodies and minds, follow their own lawful nature and not our wishes. And we we really don't like that, right? That lack of control, the inability to adequately direct things Uh, in a way that we find satisfying. It feels very insecure. You know, we see dukkha exists when we acknowledge suffering and what's difficult, but we don't necessarily see that it's deeply rooted in impermanence which itself is the inevitable outcome of the conditional nature of reality. The third, the third universal uh, characteristic, anatta or not self, non-self. There's a few different translations of what it what it means. This is the most difficult of the three to see because it's very. Um, counterintuitive, and it's really at odds even with the structure of the language that we're brought up using and that we consequentially think in. Now, we think in terms of the categories of the language that we use. And in English, at least, and I, I know there are people here who are, don't have English as their first language, but in English we use 
I, me, my, routinely and necessarily. And we're conditioned to the view that there's a fixed something that's represented by that language. So we have a possessive view of what we experience, don't we? I mean, it's like uh, my pain and my concentration and my body. And we talk about owning things of them belonging to us. But in what sense do we actually own experience? You know, can we control it? Can we say, I want my mind to do this and uh, only this? Even the jhanas, even the deepest jhanas are, are, uh, are conditional, right? They don't last forever. You know, can we say, I, co- I command my body to have only pleasant sensations and to never get sick. You know, good luck with that one. Interestingly enough, you know, the Buddha never says there's no self. He more says, you know, thinking about it that way, any kind of conversation you get into around that particular framing of what's going on is not really helpful. It's not going to go any place that isn't going to turn into a tangle of misunderstanding. He talks about the five aggregates subject to clinging. That's sort of an interesting phrase, isn't it? The five aggregates. To aggregate in English means to bring together, aggregate, you know, you kind of collect or combine, aggregate. The five aggregates subject to clinging, meaning can be grabbed, can be glommed, can be clung to, can be hung on to, can be stuck to. The five being form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness. And in, in, in uh, talking about this topic of self and how to view self and how to view the aggregates, he points out a few things. And he says, you know, the uninstructed worldling, meaning the person that doesn't have training uh, in the path and in uh, right view, regards form as self or self as possessing form or form as in self, or self as in form. And then he goes through the other four aggregates and says the same things about them. He says, this is how identity view comes to be. Instead of having these five aggregates uh, be considered uh, in a way that's uninvolved with a a self-concept, we kind of drag this... uh, self-thinking into, the, into it. And then he, he, he gives some examples to the monks about why he doesn't think that's a good way to think about it. And he says, uh, monks' form is non-self, for if monks' form were, were self, this form would not lead to affliction and would not be possible to determine form. And it would be possible to determine form. 
So he said, you'd be able to say, let my form be thus. Let my form be not thus. And it would, would happen. In other words, there would be some command or there would be some mastery over this thing uh, if you were using an understanding of uh, self as master control. He says, but because form is non-self, form leads to affliction and it's not possible to determine form. And he goes to other aggregates and says the same thing. And in another section he says, monks, is form permanent or impermanent? And they say, impermanent, Lord. You know, these are kind of leading questions he gives sometimes, you know. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, Lord. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine. This I am. This is myself. No, venerable sir. So he, he's coaching a view. He's saying, you know, don't, don't think of it like that. You know, it doesn't go well if you think of it like that. It doesn't really work. He says, you know, basically, we don't have enough control to intelligently think of our relationship with experience as one of ownership. So, you know, we can have aspirations and intentions and take action, which in, in, is indicated, but our will and our intentions are only part of what's at play in any given situation. And why? Because our will and our preferences are only part of the totality of the causes and conditions manifesting in any given situation. And, you know, remembering a Nietzsche and Dukkha we see that even the arising of will, the arising of intention, is also conditional. So selfing is not helpful in any way to understand experience, but it is a deep habit of mind. And when selfing is very strong, suffering is there. Is this not true? See in your own practice when the, the self-sense is at its strongest, notice what's happening in association with it. So everything is subject to change. Everything a manifestation of causes and conditions, including the arising of the sense of I, which wishes to control but can't. And we see this arising of the eye sense, of the self-sense, as part of what happens in our sitting. So the Buddha saw what was going on. So then he attempts to point it out to the rest of us. But it's hard for us to see because we take a personal view of things, right? We take a very personal view of things and often only a personal view. We see things with our eyes only and we see very intermittently. And because of this, we don't see the universality of these characteristics. 
which is another way of saying it's difficult for us to establish ourselves in right view, in the kind of view of things that will be helpful in being able to understand what's going on and to adjust our approach to reality accordingly. You know, we don't see these things as continuous in our life and in our mind stream. We don't see them as being present in the lives of others and always in play in the, the world. And why not? Largely because mindfulness is not present continuously. And so that means that one of the foundational tasks, if we want to awaken, is to strengthen our ability to pay attention in order to be more consistent in being able to view what's going on, right? So that attentional training needs strengthening and refinement. So, as I mentioned before, the Buddhist framework is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. That's the tips for viewing things in a skillful way. It's kind of the uh, engineering documents for the personal deconstruction of suffering and ignorance. But interestingly enough, of course, the Eightfold Path is a kind of teaching that reiterates and is somewhat circular in that the pieces fit together as steps and stages, and yet they intersect with each other and kind of interpenetrate with each other. So, for instance, we find in this particular case the Buddha's view is, re- is reflected in the instructions that are being given to you here for your meditation. The attitude, the view, the perspective is very much integrated into the kind of instructions that are given to you for Vipassana practice and the kind of Uh, guidance that you're given in individual interviews. And these particular instructions are basically a one-to-one way that you're being coached into taking the angle of entry uh, into reality and into the Buddhist teachings that will allow you to see what you need to see in order to understand how suffering is created and how it can be released. So you're being guided into connection with things in a particular way. The instructions are a bridge taking current experience and understanding of the three characteristic three characteristics and extending it from a personal and occasional recognition into an understanding that recognizes and sees it as a universal truth. And sees or feels, because there's a great deal of uh, intuitive coming together of understanding in this process, 
understands and feels the implications of this in a way that modifies our own personal understanding accordingly. So if you look at the process of insight meditation overall, what's going on is it's designed in part to create a stable platform, internal platform, through the development of mindfulness and concentration for continuous viewing of the flow of changing experience. Right? It's saying, okay, pay attention, notice what's happening, keep noticing what's happening, keep noticing what's happening, keep noticing what's happening, stay right there, stay right in the present, notice what's happening. And, you know, and then what happens when we do that. So we see, first we see, or one of the first things that we see is we see the mind's habits and how the mind, the untrained mind, goes about trying to get what it wants. Right? So again and again we see that the mind attempts to exercise control of what arises and what passes away. Has anybody noticed that? (laughs) Meaning, you know, you're fighting with what you're experiencing. This is the generic you, by the way. Trying to control it, suffering in the process, and failing. But except for that, it's a good strategy. <laughs> so some, some uh, I think, African-American uh, writer years ago wrote this book that I thought had a great title, and I think it's called something like uh, Your Arm's Too Short to Box with God. <laughs> okay. In any case... So over time, through many direct experiences, we see this pattern, this trying to exercise control, trying to get what we want, failure, suffering. We see this pattern and begin to intuit its futility. Like the light goes, is starting to go on intermittently. Oh, oh, I can't get it back, right? I can't get it back. Okay. So, you know, if you see this enough times, clearly enough, then the mind, you know, sort of gets burned out on the approach. You know, and it almost decides not to try to do it that way because it doesn't work. Right? And it's so painful. So then it lets go a little bit, and then some peace arises. So in giving up control, we see the relief the end of suffering, you know, when we're able to let go and to be present in a balanced and soft and interested way, right? Have you noticed that part yet? If not, you have to go back to number one. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So we let go a little. We say, okay, 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 okay. 
Okay, so that we get we get some peace. Then the peace passes away because it's conditioned. Right? And the mind tries to get it again. Right? Because there was success. You know, it was going good. You know, usually when, you know, we think about whether it's going good or not, it, let's be honest, you know, it's whether it's pleasant. <laughs> you know, when people come and say, you know, it's going really good. <laughs> the teachers go, where can I? <laughs> okay, it's going really good. It's kinder that way. So. so the mind tries to get the peace. Then it ignores and fights with what is now present, trying to control it. Suffering arises, and control escapes you. Right. So now, now we're struggling with, with the peace. Okay, and there are many cycles of this. You may have noticed. And when you start to notice this, when you notice this, you are you are moving into insight territory. <laughs> you know, when you when you move in the direction of think, getting like a general sense about <laughs> like And then you hear the instruction again. All you need to do, you know, just sit there, just notice what you're experiencing, you know, notice it arise, notice it pass away, allow things to be as they are, simply be present, no need to make anything happen, no need to hold on, nothing special needs to happen. Does that sound like a, a coaching <laughs> designed to help you? Uh, you know, escape from being lost in these particular cycles. So finally, the mind begins to get it. I, I won't go into uh, a definition of what finally means. This you will have to find on your own. But it does begin to get it. And it begins to release and allow things. And as the struggle diminishes, suffering fades, seeing becomes more clear, mindfulness strengthens, concentration deepens, the conditions for happiness and increased freedom arrive, understanding arises, further understanding develops, understanding being another way of saying Insight. So to go back to the first part of the talk, where I was talking about all the directions and all the instructions and all the notice this and notice that and notice this, notice that. You know, one way of saying it is just notice something, okay? <laughs> like what's right there. Just, Just, you know... Be right there. Be right in the present. Just notice what's happening. Just notice what's happening. 
Notice what the mind is doing. Notice when it's grasping. Notice what happens when it's grasping. Notice when it lets go. Notice what happens when it lets go. This is really a path of simplicity, believe it or not. Despite all the different ways of coaching you into connection with things. No, it's so simple that it's really hard. Because it goes against the grain of our our scheming machine. So, here's what you need to do. Okay, right? (laughs) Hold a basic understanding of the Buddha's framework for phenomenon, right? The three characteristics. You've heard them here tonight several times. This is a a basic view. Okay, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, not-self. Okay, three characteristics. Got it? Okay, now that... If that's kind of registered in there, you don't have to think about it anymore. Okay? Put it to the side. Unless the teacher points certain things out to you, of course. (laughs) Choose a way of meditating that allows you to connect and notice your direct experience in a mindful, kind interested way. You don't have to do all the techniques. You don't have to do all the ways. You don't have to do... Okay, just, just start with something. Okay, rest there in awareness and keep connecting and noticing. You will come to understand struggle and release. If you can have some continuity. You'll see for yourself because you'll see what you do, what we all do over and over again. You know, you'll see the conditioned habits. You'll see the conditioned patterns. You'll get very frustrated with them. You'll take them very personally. You know, you'll... Judge yourself, you'll strike out against them, you'll collapse in self-pity and blame. (laughs) You'll suffer some more. Not self. Lack of control. But you will come to understand struggle and release. And understanding will emerge from this. Insight arises from this. Okay? Take the view, take the seat, allow yourself to be present, have integrity. That's it. That's the whole thing. So, you know, there's really uh, no need to be looking for special things. Although, of course, the mind will be looking for special things because we like special things. But the truth in ordinary things is enough.
The truth is equally present in all things, anything you can experience. That's where it is. It's right there. As the Buddha said, this fathom-long body, the whole show is available to us. So an image that comes to me when I think of this, of not needing to look for things or try to make things happen, is the image of a thousand-petaled lotus. Have you ever seen any of those representations of those? You know? This beautiful lotus that has all these different aspects, all these different petals. And it has the nature to open and to want to open. And with proper warmth, light, and nourishment, it will open. That's what it does. That's the nature of it to open. And it will open one petal at a time, insight by insight, when the conditions are established. So there's no need to get fancy. And this is the blessing of the teachings of the Buddha. So let's let the words settle. May we awaken completely for the benefit and welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.